today we'll be talking about substance use in adolescence. I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Misharakova, Assistant Professor in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at UCSF and the Medical Director of the UCSF Youth Outpatient Substance Use Program. Thank you, Dr. Misharakova, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Let's get started. What are some reasons that adolescents might try substances? What a great kickoff question. And it's been a while since I've been an adolescent myself, but we know that there's a number of reasons that adolescents may start experimenting with substances. And we know most people who use substances first tried them during that adolescent time period. And some of the reasons may be just looking for another way to have fun. It may be an influence of friends. It may be something that they see happening at home and accessing drugs or other substances in the home. So there's certainly a variety of reasons depending on the person. And how common is substance use among teenagers? Well, the good news is, is that most teenagers do not use substances. I think this can be a common misconception. I hear frequently people tell me like, oh, everybody's doing this or that. And when we actually look at the data, um, most youth aren't using substances. So, and it depends on the substance. So for alcohol, for example, alcohol is the most commonly used substance by teenagers. Um, about 50% of 12th graders reported using alcohol in a year. And when we look at 10th graders, the number is about 35%. For nicotine, the numbers are even lower, especially when we're looking at traditional tobacco cigarettes. So uh, for 12th graders, only about 5% have used cigarettes in the past month. For 10th graders, that's about 3%. Now, the story is slightly different with vaping. Um, Recently, about 12% of 12th graders reported vaping um, and about 7% of 10th graders. And for other drugs... About 35 to 40% of 12th graders report using other drugs over the past year. And most of that can be attributed to cannabis. If we exclude cannabis from those numbers, it's only about 11% of 12th graders who use other drugs. So most teenagers aren't using substances. You mentioned some of the most commonly used substances like alcohol and nicotine. How have these numbers changed in the past decade? Well, alcohol has traditionally always been the most commonly used substance by teenagers, and that has been unchanged in the last decade. The next substances that are most commonly used by teenagers are nicotine and cannabis, and both of those remain unchanged. What has changed in the past decade or so is that rates of binge drinking, cigarette smoking, and prescription drug misuse have actually been going down. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, rates of vaping nicotine have been skyrocketing. And we're also seeing rates of daily cannabis use increasing a little bit, especially among younger adolescents. So how many teens who try substances actually go on to develop a substance use disorder? Ah, well, this largely depends on the age of the teen and a little bit on the substance in question. So For alcohol, about 2% of people who have their first drink after age 21 will develop a use disorder, so pretty small number. When we look at younger adolescents, those who have their first drink before age 14, 15% of those people will go on to develop a substance use disorder. 
So we know that younger age at first substance use is a very big risk factor. Mm. And for cannabis, about 9% of adults who use cannabis will develop a cannabis use disorder. For adolescents, that number is almost double. So about 17% of adolescents will go on to develop a cannabis use disorder. And looking at other drugs, something like prescription drugs or opioids, we know that if an adolescent first misuses prescription drugs before age 13, um, about a quarter of those people will go on to develop a use disorder. So again, I think the biggest message is younger use, younger age at first use is one of the biggest risk factors for going on to develop a substance use disorder. Hmm. And why exactly are teens so vulnerable to the addictive effects of substances? What a great question. And there's been a lot of research looking at this very question. And I think the complete answer is yet to be discovered. But one aspect of the adolescent brain is the fact that the prefrontal cortex of the brain is still developing through young adulthood until people are up to 25 years of age. And that prefrontal cortex is a really important part of the brain that allows us to plan for the future, think ahead, make important decisions. And so that's one uh, possibility for why adolescents are especially vulnerable to addictive effects of substances, but also the fact that the brain as a whole is still developing. So I had a, one of my patients had a really interesting analogy where they said, it's kind of like if you're baking brownies and if you mix in some salt into the brownie batter before it's baked, it's going to get baked right in. As opposed to adding the salt after the brownies are already baked, that salt's just going to be right on top and can be easily brushed right off. So you know, a brain that's still developing is more likely to kind of incorporate that substance use and those substance use patterns in the long term. So how do we distinguish between substance use and addiction in teenagers? This is a question I come across a lot. And, you know, the good news is that most people who use substances or who try substances do not go on to develop an addiction. However, Addiction is defined, you know, differently in different places. But when I am thinking about when has this become really a problem, I think of kind of big categories in life and how those are being affected by the substance use. And I think some of the most important parts of our lives are things like our family and our relationships, our job or our educational pursuits, and things we do for fun, things that give us joy. And for a lot of people who transition just from experimental use to developing an addiction, um, slowly each one of those important parts of their life gets negatively affected. It could be constant arguing with your loved ones or your partner, your significant other. It could be that if you're in school, your grades are really suffering. In terms of hobbies or things that give you joy, people find themselves um, no longer doing those things. And instead, you know, meeting up with people who are also using drugs and the life really becomes all about that one behavior. So on a big picture scale, those are the things that I think about. And when I look to make that diagnosis, of course, um, I look to the DSM-5, which is a book that helps us make psychiatric diagnoses. And it has 11 criteria for addiction. And many of those criteria reflect those three really important aspects of life. How do some of the more common substances affect teens uniquely? 
So the answer to this question is not very well known. When I looked at the scientific research that has been done on this question, most of it has been done in rats and mice. Um, So they looked at young rats, young mice, and tried to see how they react to different substances. And of course, humans aren't rats or mice, so it's hard to extrapolate that information to human brains. But we definitely see that there are differences in these animal studies. And I think one of the most stark differences is in terms of nicotine is what we see. Um, So nicotine seems to be the substance that seems to have the most unique effect on the adolescent brain when we compare it to adult brains. And what are the risk factors for the development of substance use disorders in adolescents? Mm. Well, as I mentioned previously, earlier age at first use is one of the biggest ones, and that's the one that's consistently showing up in the research. Other risk factors are you know, perhaps a family history of substance use disorder. Um, Some of that may be due to uh, the genetic risk associated with that. And some of that may be due to what's happening in the home and in the living environment. Um, Early childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences can increase someone's risk of developing a substance use disorder. And interestingly, there's a study that was done in New Zealand that followed a group of kids until they were 38 years old. And they found that frequent nicotine use was the best predictor of who would go on to develop a persistent substance use disorder in adulthood. So that's really interesting and I think relates back to um, the unique effects of nicotine on the adolescent brain. And how do other mental health conditions relate to substance use disorders in teenagers? Well, There's a close relationship in teenagers and in adults, and the presence of a substance use disorder doubles the odds of someone having another uh, mental health problem. The most common co-occurring psychiatric issue um, with substance use disorders is major depression, but other mental health disorders that have a close relationship with substance use disorders um, include bipolar disorder. So people with bipolar disorder um, may be up to four times more likely um, to develop a substance use disorder. The other one that has shown a lot of scientific support is the relationship of psychotic disorders with chronic cannabis use. Mm. So there is a twofold increase in the odds of developing a psychotic illness among people who use cannabis. And Our clinic, we also see a lot of youth with eating disorders, and we also know that people with bulimia nervosa also have an increased risk of using substances and developing substance use disorders. Hmm. So moving on for a little bit, a lot of teenagers may be on stimulant medications like Ritalin and Adderall for the treatment of ADHD. Do these medications increase the risk of developing an addiction later in life? No. So there's... A lot of questions remaining about the connection between ADHD and substance use disorders. What we see is that substance use disorders are more common in adults who have ADHD. Um, And youth with ADHD are also more likely to to, um, use substances in a risky way. However, a lot of the research shows that the risk of developing a substance use disorder actually decreases if the ADHD is appropriately treated um, with one of the medications that you mentioned, like a stimulant medication. 
And then similarly, a lot of teenagers consume caffeine. Is caffeine considered to be an addictive substance? <laughs> That's a good question. I also consume caffeine here and there. Um, so interestingly, when we look at the DSM-5, that book that I mentioned where we go to um, make diagnoses of various mental health conditions, there is a category of caffeine overdose, but there actually isn't such a thing as a caffeine use disorder, which is interesting. Uh, and for the most part, this is a good a good analogy for the difference between addiction and dependence, because many people can actually become physically dependent on caffeine, meaning that if they stop using caffeine abruptly, they may have withdrawal symptoms. They may have a headache or they may be really cranky or really tired. And, and that could be a sign that they've developed a dependence. However, very few people develop addictive tendencies. Addictive tendencies meaning kind of like what I mentioned before, you know, they're arguing with their loved ones. They're underperforming at work or at school. They're giving up their hobbies in order to seek out caffeine, right? So, so there's that distinction between, yes, you might have a little dependence on caffeine, but you're very unlikely to actually have some of those addictive behaviors. So what are some of the signs of substance use in a teenager? You've kind of already mentioned a little bit about this, but what are some of the signs of substance use in a teenager that parents should be aware of? Mm. So I think any change in behavior is something that parents should be on the lookout. So something like depressed mood, you know, and increased anxiety, changes in appetite. So I've seen lots of teenagers um, come in with such a decreased appetite from their substance use that they're not eating for days on end and losing weight. So those are some signs. Worsening academic performance is certainly a reason to at least think about whether substances might be involved. Um, and then, of course, the really obvious things like finding substances, you know, in, in your kid's room um, or smelling substances um, on their breath or on their clothing. Um, so those are some of the things that parents report when they when they first um, reach out to me with a concern that their teenager might be using drugs. And what should parents do if they do find out that their child is using drugs? Oh, I love this question. Well, the first thing is responding with love and concern and compassion and not just allowing, you know, fear and anger to take over, right? You know, remembering that people use drugs because they have a reason to use drugs. And that reason might be, you know, suffering. Maybe they're really depressed. Maybe their anxiety is really out of control. Um, maybe they are so scared of social situations that they're looking for a reason to feel better. So responding with really that love and compassion is really important. And if you're worried as a parent that that your youth might be using substances, I would say remember to model what you preach, right? So if you're telling your kid that they shouldn't be drinking, they shouldn't be smoking pot, they, et cetera, et cetera, shouldn't be doing this and that, you should also model that, right? Um, and say, hey, I'm so worried about you. I'm worried. Um, and I know that, yes, maybe I'm drinking a glass of wine with dinner. You know what? I'm so worried about you. Let's just, let's just be in solidarity and we'll just get rid of all the wine in the house and um, really kind of have that compassionate approach and show your solidarity and model what you're asking of your of your teenager as well. And then, you know, if you're first starting to pick up on some concerns, um, having an honest conversation with your child and working on some goals. 
to reduce or stop the substance use with a clear timeline, right? Say maybe, okay, um, I know you're drinking alcohol every weekend. Let's see if we can, for the next two months, see if you can avoid drinking alcohol, see how that goes. And if your child isn't able to meet those goals within that timeline, that may be a sign that the substance use is more serious than an experimentation. This might be the time to seek some expert consultation, to look for an adolescent medicine doctor or um, a child and adolescent psychiatrist or an addiction psychiatrist and see, you know, perhaps this has turned into more than just um, some intermittent use. And then, of course, I would say if you're a parent and your child has ever experienced an overdose, whether that's from alcohol or another drug, I would recommend not delaying treatment at that time. That's a serious enough issue where I would say immediately seek treatment. Hmm. And how can doctors screen for substance use disorders in adolescents? Well, we definitely recommend screening all adolescents for substance use disorders, And we recommend using a validated screening tool. So um, not just simply asking those questions in a conversational way, but actually using something like the craft, which is a screener that you can hand to the adolescent and they can fill out on their own, or you can ask the questions verbally. And we know that using a validated screening tool is more effective than just weaving that discussion into conversation. And better yet, if you can use an iPad-based screener or a computer-based screener, we actually know that people are more tend to be more honest when they're responding to surveys um, on a device as opposed to face-to-face. Hmm. So moving forward, what are some of the general treatment strategies for managing substance use disorders in teens? And how might these strategies differ compared to those used for adults? Mm-hmm. So this, again, depends a little bit on the substance in question. So for example, for nicotine use disorder, um, we might use many of the same strategies in adolescence that we would for adults. Um, So we might discuss potentially using nicotine replacement, like nicotine patches, nicotine gum, um, or some of the other medications that can be prescribed to treat nicotine use disorder. For... Opioid use disorder, I think, and a really important factor is remembering that adolescents should get the gold standard treatment, which for opioid use disorder is often a medication, something like the opioid antagonist naltrexone or something like buprenorphine. And what we know is that adolescents who have severe Um, opioid use disorder, or even adolescents who have been to an emergency room after an opioid overdose are less likely than adults to get that life-saving treatment. Mm -hmm. So that's a principle that I feel strongly about, that adolescents should get evidence-based, FDA-approved treatment whenever possible. But I also think that it's important for adolescents to get both medical and psychological treatment. As we talked about, a lot of substance use happens in association with other mental health issues like depression or anxiety. And so working on some of those issues at the same time is really important. And what we also know from the research, treatment for adolescents seems to be much more effective when the entire family is involved whenever possible. Certainly there are scenarios where that's not possible, but When it is and there's a loving 
caring family member available, involving the whole family to support that young person in recovery is one of the most effective strategies that we have seen. Hmm. Is there a role that you feel the juvenile justice system could play in addressing adolescent drug misuse? Hmm. Unfortunately, I think by the time the juvenile justice system is involved, oftentimes they get involved in kind of late in the game. So, you know, my wish is sort of upstream, more upstream interventions, you know, prevention strategies in schools that are actually effective and, you know, not cheesy <laughs> and have scientifically been proven to work, you know, not, not something like the D.A.R.E. program from when I was growing up, um, but actually informative educational approaches. The juvenile justice system, you know, is often kind of a late intervention. Oftentimes the juvenile justice system is involved after a youth has been struggling with mental health issues or substance use disorders for a long time. Now, I think they could still play a role and not cause more harm by, you know, by not punishing youth, but helping them to connect with appropriate treatment um, and taking a compassionate approach to a youth who's struggling with this illness of addiction. Yeah. Can teens fully recover once they stop using a substance? Oh my gosh, this is actually the reason that I love my job is because absolutely, adolescents are incredibly resilient and they can absolutely fully recover. And if we catch addiction early and we start addressing it in a really meaningful, collaborative way with an adolescent, um, we have full hope that that person can recover and go on and live their, their best life. So I love that part of my job because there's so much hope um, and resilience. That's wonderful. So aside from some of the things that you've already kind of talked about, are there things that we can do to help prevent teenage addiction as a society? Mm-hmm. Boy, this is the million dollar question, of course. So um, one of the biggest things that I've seen is how adverse childhood experiences can affect people for their entire lifetime and can affect their mental health and their physical health. And so as a society, having programs that help people get out of poverty or help them with food insecurity or providing people housing, basically things that support families so that children um, growing up aren't facing those adverse childhood experiences. Incarceration is another one. You know, youth who grew up, who grow up with parents who have been subject to incarceration, that's considered an adverse childhood experience and does increase their risk of various problems, including substance use and, and addiction. So I think just having a more compassionate, gentler society where um, families and kids are really supported to decrease those adverse childhood experiences is is my biggest wish, which is a tall order. <laughs> yeah. And finally, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Again, I think I'd like to end on the fact that there is so much hope and that adolescents are incredible and resilient. And it's such a crucial and important time of someone's life that this is really the reason I chose this work is that in adolescence, a person can really choose a different path and recover and live a wonderful life. And I think I'd like to end with, with that. I just think there's just much, much hope. That's a wonderful note to end on. 
I want to thank you again, Dr. Mashirakova, for taking the time to be here, and I hope we can speak again sometime in the future. <laughs>